0: I may proclaim to you the word of our God this morning as we find it in the Psalms. We'll read together Psalm 3. Psalm 3, which has as its heading a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me, many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept, I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. After the proclamation of the gospel, we'll sing together in response from this very same psalm put to music, and we'll sing all stanzas of Psalm 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as readers, as students of Holy Scripture, we are lifted up and we're carried by God's words. His words minister to us in all the various experiences of our existence. There is this wholeness to God's word. And for you and me to discover that wholeness, well, we need, go no looking, we need not go looking any further than the Psalms. The Lord God designed the Psalms to address the whole of human life. There he meets us in both our light and dark moments, our delightful and desperate situations, our hopeful and also hopeless circumstances. There is this realism to the Psalms that is simply unsurpassed. God gave the Psalms to the church so that we might read them devotionally, preach them, sing them, and even pray them. God's words here in the Psalms have the power to move us to console us, convict us in every last one of our affairs in this life. The psalm before us this morning holds the words of God that are ready for us to pray when we are in need of deliverance. For some of you then, it's a psalm that's going to have some fairly obvious connections to where you are right now. But that's not to imply that for others in our midst, it's a psalm that has very little bearing on where you are right now. Each and every one of us is needy, vulnerable, and has enemies. Prayer, particularly the prayer of this psalm, is how we work our way through the thickets of this life. The Lord knows our neediness, our vulnerability, our suffering. And He lifts us up and He carries us by His words. Words He's given to us so that we would give them back to Him. In our moments of crisis, confusion, God's Word comes into our lives and He comforts us. That's what we hope to see then this morning. I proclaim to you the Word of God under this theme, hounded by innumerable foes, The Lord's anointed prays for deliverance. We'll consider his complaint, his confidence, and also his cry in the third place. So first, we consider the psalmist's complaint. Psalm three has above it the heading, "A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now these headings, you may know, are not inspired. They're not original. But the church throughout the ages has nevertheless regarded them as authoritative. They're worth paying attention to. The story of David's fleeing from his son is shared with us in 2 Samuel 15 through 17. King David had been busying himself with his various kingly responsibilities. In the meantime, his son Absalom was pining for his father's throne. So, as we read together in chapter 15, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel who had come to the king with their complaints. Absalom surrounded himself with a group of followers, and in time he plotted a rebellion against David. He gathered supporters in the nearby town of Hebron. He got his followers to declare him king. This was a rebellion very unexpected. And it soon reaches the ears of David in Jerusalem, betrayed by his own son, his kingship in jeopardy, his very life is at stake. Now the conspiracy was so advanced that it left the Lord's anointed with no other option than to flee Jerusalem along with whatever leaders remained on his side. So with much weeping and many tears, David and company retreated down the Capitol Hill, crossed the Kidron Valley, and made their way up to the Mount of Olives. Then they made their way into the wilderness, they crossed the Jordan River, and they camped at a place called Mahanaim. So when David pens this psalm, he's a fugitive. He's been driven out from his palace, the very haven of order and peace, into the wilderness, disorder. But this betrayal by Absalom was really only part of the sorrowful situation. When Absalom was gathering those supporters in Hebron, he also enlisted, he drew the help of Ahithophel, who had been one of David's wisest counselors. David eventually catches wind of this betrayal. Further... Mephibosheth, that crippled son of, of uh, grandson of Saul, son of Jonathan, that's the one to whom David had shown such great kindness by granting him the privilege of eating at the king's table. This Mephibosheth was reported as staying in Jerusalem with the intention of becoming king in David's absence. Chapter 16, verse 3. More betrayal. Then... To add further insult to injury, while David and his followers are making their way into the wilderness, David is openly cursed by Shimei, a Benjamite, a man from the same clan as Saul's family. Shimei pelts David with stones. He throws dirt at him and he cries, come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul and has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. Humiliating. Still after, David received instruction from a couple of spies that he should cross over the Jordan River quickly. For Absalom was mobilizing the entire nation to attack, to find David, attack him, and put him to death. Chapter 17, verse 11 and following. So David, the fugitive, crossed the Jordan River and he camped at Mahanaim with Absalom and all the men of Israel hot on his trail. Now, beloved, this is the David of Psalm 3. He's hounded by those who oppose him. He's betrayed by his very own son, by his own counselor, and forsaken by his own people. Can we, for our part, identify why the Lord allowed such a disgraceful uprising? We can Absalom's rebellion was part of the Lord's judgment on David's sins of adultery and murder in the Bathsheba-Uriah catastrophe. To be sure, God in his grace forgave David when he repented of his sins, but God in his righteous judgment brought David to reap the consequences of those sins. God was going to chasten David by means of family Problems. He promised this in 2 Samuel 12, verse 10 through 12, and the, this uprising of Absalom was included in that. Now David knows this. David knew his past sins were the background to his current predicament. Nevertheless, in his distress, he takes up his pen and he writes this psalm. It's a psalm of lament, complaint, especially we see that in these opening verses, is this right? Does David in this setting with his shameful background have any business complaining? Two answers to that. First, complaints in the psalms are generally not a rebellious complaining like that of Israel in the wilderness. The complaint is simply the godly author spelling out with great emotion, great honesty, the struggles he's experiencing. So David's complaint is not David's belly aching, it's his unburdening of himself. The second answer to whether David has any business complaining is this Absalom was trying to dethrone the very king whom the Lord had anointed and installed on his holy hill, Psalm 2. And so David complains of his son and all others involved in this conspiracy because David knows full well that they have made it their business to frustrate the Lord's decree. These are enemies who are fighting not so much against David, but against the Lord. Well, then, when we turn to Psalm 3, it all is so very vivid for God's servant David. All his foes are rushing at him, hounding him. Verse 1, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. David has his eyes uh, in in the open, looking in the distance, and he's seeing his foes. And they're coming at him from every side. The situation is perilous, and it's only getting worse. You can imagine that David is in some kind of panic mode. He's turning this way and that, looking for a way out, but all he sees is that innumerable host rushing, pressing ever closer upon him. He feels confined, tightly bound, unable to escape. This is Combat in progress, and David feels trapped. But not only does David see his enemies, he also gets to hear them. Verse 2 Many are they who say of me, There is no help for him in God. So his enemies are not only many, they're also rather mouthy. They taunt him, they mock him, they attack his very faith in God. There's no deliverance for him in God. That's the kind of help that they're talking about. Help or deliverance from his current predicament. David wanted freedom. He wanted space to breathe. But his foes won't have any of it. He's the Lord's anointed king. Now look at him, running for cover. God no longer stands on his side, God's not going to deliver him. Remember King Saul and how he sinned? God withdrew from him, took the kingship from him. This is what's happening to this David. How could a man like him be our king? It's Absalom we need. And so they attack him not only physically, they also trash talk his very identity. calling these are his foes we understand and these foes are members of his very own family his own kingdom fellow Israelites are so painful something with which incidentally also our Savior was very familiar he said at one point to his disciples a man's enemies will be those of his own household he was attacked by his very own brothers, his fellow Israelites. On the cross, they mocked him, implying that God's not going to deliver him. He saved others. He surely can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let, let him trust then God to deliver him. The worst kind of fighting generally happens within families, between brothers. Now, you may not be facing innumerable enemies, and for that matter, you may not be facing attack from your own flesh and blood. But perhaps there is a distressing circumstance in your life where you've been betrayed or perhaps even bereaved hurts beyond words. and It's sometimes in those moments or periods of time that your foes, particularly your chief of foes, the devil, looks for a foothold. He wants to push you over the edge, undermine your very confidence in God to help you, deliver you. Look at yourself. Look at your life, where you are, what you've all done. Do you really think God has any good reason to help you, deliver you from your hurt, your pain? There is no deliverance for you in God. Pay no heed to him at all, brothers and sisters. Do not fear that there is no deliverance for you from God. Rather, Look at how David responds to the taunts of his foes. He tells the Lord about it. He complains to God, the very God who his enemies say wants nothing to do with David. This is the one to whom David utters his holy complaint. He pours out his anguish at the feet of a God who is apparently not supposed to care or to be bothered to deliver David. David trusts in the Lord, casts his burden upon the Lord. He turns his attention from his enemies unto his God. That's our second point where we see David's confidence. But you, verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. But you, he says, which is now the key turning point in this psalm. <clears throat> David turns his gaze away from the situation, and he fills up his vision with his God. He's got something off his chest, as it were. And now he says very emphatically, "But you, O Lord." And when he does that, when he turns to his God and he sees him in his might, he sees God as far greater than that innumerable host of enemies hounding him. And in verse 3, then he confesses the very identity of God. You, O Lord, are a shield for me. This again, David in this psalm is thinking in terms of combat, warfare, and he confesses his God to be his shield, his protection. Interestingly, That word used here refers to actually a smaller type of round shield. It's designed to protect the arm and the upper torso of the soldier. But really what David says here is literally, you are a shield about me. Around. The Lord provides a complete protection. He surrounds David and us on all sides, before and behind that means then that whatever happens to you as a child of God, be it prosperity or adversity, is part of God's shielding you. You're never without or beyond his reach. He's making you more resilient, more trustful for tomorrow. David also calls God my glory. The word glory carries the idea of weight, of dignity, significance. It's the word that we know behind the fifth commandment honor your father and mother. Same word. David is, you understand, losing his kingship, kingdom to Absalom. David is losing his own very glory, his dignity his importance. But for David, that doesn't matter. That's not cause for anxiety or fear. He has all the glory he needs in the Lord God himself. He finds his sufficiency in the Lord. He finds his honor and his own dignity in the Lord. David is the Lord's anointed, united to him by faith. We united to God, communing with him by faith. Our identity, our dignity is in the Lord. (laughs) David then also confesses God to be the one who lifts up my head. That's remarkable. David had left Jerusalem with his head down. He left in disgrace, in humiliation, His head, 2 Samuel 15 verse 30 says, his head was covered. David was in dire need of the Lord's restoring care. So God singles him out and he lifts him up. Lifts up his head. An uplifted head is the posture of victory. David had mourned over his sins and he submitted himself to the mercy of God Now, though a fugitive, though he's on the run, the Lord's anointed was certain of the Lord's help and uplifting power. David was convinced that his kingship still existed, that God accepted him and approved of him, that he wanted David on the throne. David turns in confidence to the source of true glory. And the one who establishes, reestablishes his contrite child. David's confidence continues into verse 4. I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. David was not so broken down by adversity that he was prevented from praying to God. Though his enemies raged against him, though they tried to overwhelm his faith, David doesn't become mute. He cried aloud to the Lord. He professed the name of his God, the very God who his enemies claimed was his enemy. And David was sure that God heard him and answered from his holy hill. Mount Zion Jerusalem. More particularly, that's from the Ark of the Covenant, which at that time stood in the tabernacle. Psalm 80 says that that's God's throne. David's words are beautiful, brothers and sisters. David may have been ejected from his throne, but the Lord God was still on the throne. David was running. He was on his way away from the holy hill to the river Jordan and beyond. But he knows that his prayers come to the Lord's holy hill, even when David has himself no physical access there. Physical space, this is the point. Physical space never separates the child from his heavenly Father. In prayer, that child appears before God's very holy throne. David is assured that God protects, God is sufficient, and God is accessible. And that assurance that God hears him gives to David peace in his heart. Even though he knew Absalom was plotting to destroy him, he has peace. That's not natural. That's supernatural. Verse five, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. Because of who you are, O Lord, I can go to sleep. And David's sleep here is not the sleep of exhaustion from anxious fretting about tomorrow. No, it's the sleep of trust. David has peace within turmoil. And so he goes to sleep. David, in faith, has handed over control of his life. And the Lord awoke him at the appointed hour to a new day. That was a sign to David that the Lord was with him and his followers and would preserve them somehow through the difficulty. Well, that makes us think again of the greater David. The Lord Jesus Christ, how did he approach the sleep of death? He went to Golgotha fully aware that God was with him, filled him with trust, that God would preserve him in his darkest hour. Because God had a plan, even though God would forsake him. Christ knows it, and Christ therefore has the hope of the resurrection. He was so certain throughout his ministry, also on the cross, that the sleep of death wouldn't be the end for him. And so he gladly, by faith, in trust, handed up his spirit to his father, knowing that's not the end. God's going to deliver me from death. That's what happens on Sunday. So too for us, beloved, we go to sleep sometimes with our world crashing down around us. But the Lord takes care of us. He sustains us. If we trust Him and seek to obey Him, God works even while we sleep. That's why we sang, From Psalm 121, he never slumbers nor sleeps. And so David is unafraid as he faces a new day. Verse six, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me all around. David has heard the reports. Absalom is marshalling an army beyond count. Our translation says 10,000s but really that word there refers to myriads, thousands of 10,000s. The precise number is no longer relevant to David. He's simply unafraid of the future. His current circumstances have not yet changed at all. Still in exile, still a fugitive. But from verse one to verse six of Psalm three, he has progressed. He's gone from a complaint to confidence. He has no alarm, no anxiety. The Lord's anointed knows where he needs to turn for deliverance. We know where we must turn for our strength, for our peace. And so we come to our final point where we see the psalmist's cry. At the beginning of Psalm three in verse one, David describes his enemies as those who rise up against him. Now at the end of Psalm 3, in verse 7, he uses the same verb as before, and he asks the Lord to rise up in his defense. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For David, again, deliverance has yet to come. He's still in the wilderness, and so he prays for deliverance. His cry is just like the cry of Moses when he was leading Israel from the wilderness into the promised land. He uttered a war cry. Whenever they broke camp, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. He cried for God to show his favor. David, in faith, raises up Moses' war cry. But now it's raised against an imposter, a pretender to Israel's throne, the king's own flesh and blood. Faith cries out for God to accomplish big things. Yet notice how he speaks in verse seven, second half of verse seven. You have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Now, we'll comment in a moment on the explicitness of this verse, but notice David speaks here in the past tense, as if the Lord has already accomplished these things. Point? David is so certain of deliverance that he describes it here as something that's already happened. But what about the content of his cry in verse 7? It's the kind of terminology that makes people rather uncomfortable. This is a prayer, it seems, for God to get violent. It sounds as if David is very vengeful here. He wants God to act like a street brawler, a thug, who smashes the face of the enemy, breaks their jaws, knocks out their teeth. What do we do with all this, beloved? Is this just another alleged example of Old Testament saints being vindictive, wanting to take matters in their own hands? Aren't we as New Testament people exhorted not to repay evil for evil, but to return good for evil? We're supposed to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. Our text leaves us somewhat uncomfortable, maybe. David is not vindictive. He's not vengeful. Again, he's thinking in terms of warfare. He's talking about hand-to-hand combat. Striking the enemy on the jaw or on the cheek was a way to publicly disgrace them and humiliate them, which is what God was going to do. God is going to wipe out the enemy. David Commits vengeance to the Lord. He cries to him for deliverance. In order for David to be saved, to be helped, delivered, God will have to bring down those who oppose his anointed king. David's not safe. He feels constricted. He needs to escape the grip of death. It's not going to happen unless his enemies are eliminated. In other words, brothers and sisters, we need to see that salvation, deliverance, can be a rather messy thing. If God's servants, God's anointed, are ever to be freed, enemies who strike them, physical or spiritual, must be judged or crushed. This concept, congregation, is preciously familiar to new testament christians is it not the case that psalm 3 verse 7 is pointing directly to calvary to the cross of the messiah the cross is the fulfillment of this verse which then also makes this verse something of an echo of Genesis 3, verse 15, where God said to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. Yes, salvation, deliverance can be a messy thing. It comes through conflict, warfare, with someone emerging as the victor, Lord Jesus went to the cross and then came his defeat, his embarrassing of the enemy, sin and Satan. We as New Testament believers can look at our text and we can see that our real enemy is not flesh and blood. It's with the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Our enemy is and remains sin and Satan. And nothing short of the power of the Lord is going to crush that enemy. That power, that victory was there at the cross of Christ. That's our true victory over our enemies. David here is crying out to the Lord to strike David's enemies. David is praying his enemies. His intent with this prayer, he wants the Lord to do whatever needs to be done in order to bring his enemies to shame, to humility, so that they too would come to the cross by faith. That's the only way rebellion, fighting can be truly snuffed out, and where deliverance can be achieved. And so we come to the climax of this psalm, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. It's a beautiful confession of faith. Salvation, deliverance belongs to the Lord. All deliverances in the various crises of our life, God repeatedly accomplishes. David is sure of it. His enemies had said of him way back in verse one, there is no salvation for him in God, verse two rather. That's what his enemies had said, but David knows better. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, and that includes Israel's anointed king. He knows that God is the author of salvation from start to finish. Salvation belongs to Him, and that speaks to both our great and our wondrous redemption, as well as our daily specific deliverances in this life, from sin, as well as from its consequences. We need to see this morning that God's work for us is big. It covers our whole life. as we need to see it, all of us. That's how the psalmist ends, with his eye cast toward the church. Your blessing is upon your people. David, hounded though he was, doesn't become so wrapped up in his own situation that he forgets about the church. He ends by looking beyond the I, me, and my, of all the previous verses. He ends with a benediction for his people. O Lord, it's not just about my crisis, my foes. These kinds of things are the lot of your whole people. May your blessing be extended also to them in their troubles. David embraces union, solidarity with his people. He prays for the church, even then his enemies within the church. And so, brothers and sisters... As God's anointed people today, whether or not you are presently enjoying, uh, experiencing rather a messy situation and in need of deliverance from it, this word of God is for you to embrace. It teaches you hope, peace, comfort. It teaches you how to live as the righteous and forgiven people that God has declared you to be. Pray this psalm, know that you can bring your complaints, your chaos to the Lord. He listens, he hears, he answers from on high. Cry out to him for deliverance, daily deliverance, lifelong deliverance from your enemies that hound you and rejoice that indeed for you, for the church, deliverance is from the Lord your great God and deliverer, amen.